Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 318, Battle of the Pockets, Part 2. Last time, we saw General Homa send the forces of General Nara at the defensive line, protected by General Parker's 2nd Corps, on the eastern half of southern Bataan, though mistakes had been made in the disposition of men, which created a short-lived gap it just happened to be where Nara sent the bulk of his attack. Thus developed the Battle of Trail too, which was a close-run thing. But the Allies, mostly Filipino soldiers, held up the enemy and in the end stood their ground. And General Nara was about to launch another attack when he was told to stand down and pull back. This was partially due to Nara not being able to break through, but also because of what had transpired along General Wainwright's western half of the defensive line. It will be remembered that because General Homa thought the main Allied line was actually further south than it really was, he wanted Nara to break into the Allied line, then turn left or east and push the enemy, literally, into the Manila Bay. From there, they would head further south and engage the enemy. Meanwhile, Homa would have General Kimura push past the outposts along the western end of the Allied line and make for the Binyuangan River, about halfway down the remainder of Allied-controlled territory, to begin the main fight. Thus, General Kimura, like General Nara, was not expecting serious resistance until his men made it further south. When General Kimura started out his attack on the western end of the line, He had the 122nd Infantry Regiment, minus two companies, of the 65th Brigade, and Colonel Yorimasa Yoshioka's 20th Infantry Regiment, 16th Division. But what Wainwright could not know was that Colonel Yoshioka's force was not front-line troops, but rather troops that guarded his headquarters, service troops, and the 3rd Battalion, but missing one company. So Colonel Yoshioka was bringing to the fight about 1,000 men. As for the rest of his regiment, they were already committed to other parts of the battle. Now, General Homa was keenly aware of his lack of punching power, which is why, on January 25th, one day before the attack was to get underway, he told General Morioka, the commander of the 16th Division, currently in Manila, to rush to Northern Bataan and to bring two battalions of infantry the 1st Battalion, 20th Infantry, but within a matter of days, practically all of these men would be dead in the Battle of the Points, and the 21st Independent Engineer Regiment, Headquarters Troops. Homa wanted Morioka in place by January 27th, and he wanted the general to take over the attack on Wainwright's part of the line from Kimura. General Homa was hoping that a fresh perspective would make a difference. The overall Japanese commander was getting anxious as January 26th, the date that he wanted the attack to begin on the enemy's new defensive line, was the same day that his 50-day deadline was up from Tokyo. Now, truth be told, the other Japanese attacks were going well, better than well. They were ahead of schedule. Hence, Homa would be given more time than first thought needed. However, his pride was hurt and thus he wanted this over with. So, the extra two battalions and the new leadership for the Japanese right, Allied left. 
As covered previously, General Wainwright's western line was about 13,000 yards long and broken into two sections. The right sector, led by Brigadier General William Broger, commander of the 11th Division, Philippine Army, and the left sector, led by Major General Albert Jones, commander of the 51st Infantry Division, Philippine Army. General Broger's area of responsibility on the right side was from the Pentagon River, which divided Wainwright's 1st Corps from Parker's 2nd Corps, and going left went to Trail 7, about evenly dividing Wainwright's area. Broger put the Philippine constabulary troops he had on the right side to guard the Pentagon River and its approach from the north. This meant that the constabulary was where the 1st Corps connected with the left flank of the 2nd Corps. Just to the constabulary's left was the 13th Infantry Regiment, Philippine Army, of the 11th Division, and to the left of the 13th Regiment, on and just to the right of Trail 7, was the 11th Infantry Regiment, led by Colonel Glenn R. Townsend. Trail 7, which factors heavily into the Battle of the Pockets, is just to the right or east of the dividing line between Jones and Broger's section. As for the left sector, led by General Jones, again in overall charge of the area to the left of Trail 7, he had on his left flank, closest to the shore, General Stevens' 91st Division. As for the eastern section, or the right half of General Jones' left sector, there was initially the 45th Infantry, Philippine Scouts. However, these men of the 45th would be removed for elsewhere by MacArthur's staff, and so they pulled themselves out of the line on January 26th. General Wainwright wasted no time in telling General Fidel V. Segundo and his 1st Division, Philippine Army, to remove themselves from near the western coast and to help fill the gap left by the 45th Infantry. These Philippine troops moved inland and were joined by the 2nd Battalion, 1st Infantry, on January 27th. They, the 2nd Battalion, had also come from the beach. So now that Wainwright's line was more or less secure in the middle, his far left flank was weaker than before. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. 
Before the Japanese hit Wainwright's line, it's important to remember that this section of Bataan was covered in dense jungle, numerous streams and trails, some narrow and rarely used, others more popular and in better shape. However, at the end of the day, all this meant that, unless one was a local or had spent time in this area, getting lost, staying lost, and never really knowing where one was at, was the norm. This made defense a challenge, but how it affected the aggressors would dominate the battle in the western section. As we have seen, the orders to attack from Homa were issued on January 26th. But General Nara was not quite ready, thus his forces went out the next day, January 27th. However, on General Kimura's side, he was ready to go. Thus, in the early afternoon of January 26th, Kimura's right flank clashed with the men of General Stevens' 91st Division along the coast. The aggressors were confident as they had pushed back the enemy further up the coast a week or so ago. However, the 91st was not caught off guard, thus were prepared and stopped the Japanese from breaking their line. Kimura was disappointed that this first charge had been dashed, but he kept his men at it the next day, January 27th. However, General Stevens' men of the 91st showed that the previous day's resistance was no fluke. Again, the attackers were stymied. That was the good news. The bad news was that the Japanese would do what they had always done when confronting an issue like this. They would send men along the line to sniff out a weak spot, and they would find one. During the night of January 28th, in front of the 1st Division, Philippine Army, on the right half of the left sector, led by General Segundo. Backing up a bit, the men of the 1st Division had been roughly treated by the enemy during the First Battle of Bataan, further north. Next, as they had lost much of their equipment and guns during their hasty retreat, when they reached this new section, they were ordered to the rear to collect themselves and were told to put in for equipment replacement. However, that was before the catastrophe of the 45th being pulled out of the line by the higher-ups. So, Wainwright ordered the still ill-equipped men of the 1st Division into the line during late January 26th, early January 27th. As they were still missing much of what actually made them a division, and they knew the intensity of the adversary, when they got into place, the men wasted no time and got to digging trenches and clearing land to increase their fire lanes. However, they were still without things like axes or shovels, so, had to dig with their mess kits and clear vines and the undergrowth with their bayonets. In fact, the men of the 1st Division were still setting up their defensive position, stringing up wire, when the 1,000 men from Colonel Yoshioka's 20th Infantry came charging at them. As the 1st Division was caught off guard and could not rely on their works, they backed up to form a line. This allowed the invaders to take a nearby high ground and then push on the line on the afternoon of January 28th. The relatively weak spot had been found and reported back to Kimura, who had sent Yoshioka and his men in. Now, the Japanese troops were just as scared as the Filipinos and the Americans, 
In fact, they wrote about it often enough in their diaries or letters going back home. But they certainly didn't show this fear to their commanders. And Yoshioka, fearful himself, knew that if a hole could be created and he could send his men through, it might be the beginning of the end of this war for Bataan. And what better way to save his men's lives than by ending this war? Hence, Yoshioka yelled at his men, pushed them on, and soon a defending allied company was pushed back, which created the desired gap. So during the night of January 28th, Yoshioka and his men went through the gap and up the valleys of the Kotar and Tuol rivers. The problem was, no one knew which river was which, the defenders nor the attackers, and no two maps agreed on the trail system either. At a moment like this, a local guide would have been worth more than a few hundred soldiers. As Yoshioka's men walked further behind the main fighting line, their enthusiasm wavered as they could not figure out where they were. The rivers and streams all looked alike. Visibility was only 15 yards or so ahead, and each man had to step over massive roots while at the same time ducking under thick hanging vines that could lift a man off his feet should one get under his chin while he was walking. So that night of January 28th was confusion, disinformation, all wrapped in darkness. The men of Yoshioka did what they could, even though they had no idea where they were, where the enemy was, or how to find their way out. Still, they were here, so Yoshioka had them cut Allied communication lines when come upon and left groups of men behind in their infamous roadblock formations. On the Allied side, the jungle was too thick to have a continuous line as much as they tried, and they could not find the enemy, some of which were now behind them. General Segundo's men searched for the enemy, but were just as confused and lost as their prey. Further, Segundo thought that only a small group of enemy troops had gotten past his line, which is what he reported to his superior. For his part, Colonel Yoshioka now found that the group he was leading had a small section of it accidentally break off by following another trail. Hindsight allows us to know that as Yoshioka's group was traveling along the Tuol River, again, not that Yoshioka knew this, some of his men had gotten separated and traveled more to the south. This group was not more than a company of men, and they soon were come upon by the men of the 1st Division, Philippine Army. Or rather, it would be more accurate to say that this small group of Japanese troops were spotted by the men of the 1st Division who were in a defensive position on a hill. This smaller group of invaders would be called the Little Pocket, and though they didn't know it, they were about 400 yards behind the main defensive line and about 1,000 yards west of Trail 7 that divided the right and left sectors of Wainwright's First Corps area. Meanwhile, Yoshioka and the majority of his force kept moving southeast, and soon they stumbled upon Trail 7. Thankful of their luck, they established a defensive position along the trail, knowing that they could now disrupt movements of the enemy. What they did not know, specifically, was that they were right behind an area commanded by Colonel Townsend's 11th Infantry. 
But this larger force, Yoshioka's force, soon to be called the Big Pocket, remained undetected throughout January 28th and was only discovered during the morning of January 29th. What happened was the Provisional Battalion of the 51st Division, led by Captain Gordon Myers, was heading north on Trail 7, hoping to help out the men of the 1st Division when he ran into the Japanese roadblock. The two sides clashed while charging at each other, and the firefight soon became one of bayonets. But before too long, the Japanese disengaged and backed away. Yoshioka was here to cause trouble not fight the entire war himself. Soon after this fight, men from the 11th Infantry were ordered to fall back from the main line further north and were soon walking south on Trail 7. Yoshioka and his men traveling north discovered the Filipinos before they were discovered and so laid out an ambush. This unit of the 11th Infantry was killed to a man. Word of this got back to Colonel Townsend, so he sent a sergeant to investigate, who was also killed. His body was found near where Trail 5 runs into Trail 7 from the west. Clearly, an enemy force was about one mile behind the line and operating with impunity. Yet the question remained, how large was this force along Trail 7? Either way, it had to be destroyed. So Colonel Townsend ordered two reserve companies from the 11th Infantry on the afternoon of January 29th to locate and destroy the enemy. However, these two companies, once they made contact with the Japanese, were manhandled. So Townsend finally realized he was dealing with a much larger force. So MacArthur's headquarters was notified, and the 1st Battalion of the 45th Infantry, Philippine Scouts, was made available which showed up about 8 p.m. that night, ready to get involved the next day. However, it would not go so easy for the defenders. For the next few days, the Philippine scouts attacked from the south, while the 11th Infantry troops hit the enemy from the north. Yet the big pocket would not collapse. The enemy was too well dug in and set up. What Townsend could not know was that Besides normal foxholes and trenches, the Japanese had created tunnels connecting the various trenches, and they had placed their machine guns behind thick fallen trees. Hence, to approach them was to offer the Japanese the first, and it has to be said, well-coordinated, shot. Similar to the Battle of Trail 2, the battle here for Trail 7 was not greatly altered by Allied artillery as the air above the men's head was full, literally, three-dimensionally speaking, shells would not go very far before exploding. Having made contact with a tree or a branch or a vine, even the 175mm gun brought forward to within 200 yards of the enemy's position made little difference. As during the Battle of the Points, this contest would be decided by men, their rifles, their bayonets, and Browning Automatic Rifles, or BARS. Now, the big pocket along Trail 7, a mile behind the defensive line, was straddled on the line between Broger's right sector and Jones' left sector. Additionally, the 1st Division was having its own problems with the little pocket to the northwest of the big pocket and closer to the line. So the question for the Americans was, 
How far north did the big pocket go? And how far south did the little pocket go? Were they connected? How much space was in between them? Was it possible to squeeze a force in between them to prevent them from bringing their numbers together? And finally, with the big pocket spilling into both sectors, who should be appointed to reduce this enemy position? As the saying goes, too many cooks in the kitchen spoils the soup. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. General Wainwright, by now, had come to the scene of the big pocket himself. Right away, he chose General Broger, the right sector commander, to lead the troops against the big pocket. As for the actual fighting, that would be led by Colonel Townsend. Now, from the Japanese point of view, things weren't that rosy either. The Philippine 1st Division's troops, close to the main line, had cut off any exit for Yoshioka's men, and their supplies were running out. After all, the plan had been to get past the main defensive line, cause chaos, and then the rest of Kimura's men would come down and save them but the Filipino troops were proving way too stubborn for that. So General Morioka, now in charge, tried to have supplies dropped to Yoshioka's men. But the confusing battle lines meant that most of these packages fell into Allied hands, who were grateful as their rations had been cut to half back on January 5th. This left General Morioka with one option. He had to smash through the Allied line and either rescue his men or join up with them and continue pushing south. Clearly, this would require reinforcements. So, Morioka ordered the 2nd Battalion of his 33rd Infantry Division into the line, along with Colonel Takiche's 9th Infantry Regiment, which was missing one battalion. These troop movements had been ordered days earlier, so by February 6th, Morioka was ready to shatter Wainwright's line. As the sun went down on February 6th, Morioka launched his attack. First, he had the 2nd Battalion, 33rd Infantry, head towards Trail 7. Next, the 122nd Infantry Regiment, augmented with the two battalions of the 9th Infantry, hit the two Philippine divisions in the center of the line. The fighting went on through the late evening, early night, of February 6th, and just after midnight, the Japanese 2nd Battalion, attacking down Trail 7, ran into a platoon of Company F, 11th Infantry. It wasn't much of a fight considering the numbers, and in a short time, 18 of the 29 men of the platoon were dead, still in their foxholes. Now, with the 2nd Battalion free to continue down Trail 7, it would only be a matter of time before they ran into the backs of the Filipino troops who were stationed just north of the Big Pocket. In other words, another massacre was about to play itself out. Because of the geography and the point of insertion by the Japanese 2nd Battalion, 
They were located to the east of where Colonel Yoshioka and his men had first penetrated the main defensive line. Hence, this now put the 2nd Battalion due north of the Big Pocket and to the northeast of the Little Pocket. Either way, the 2nd Battalion was about to head down Trail 7 and relieve their comrades. But it was at this moment that Major Helmert J. Deusterhoff, commanding the 2nd Battalion 11th Infantry, came up with a plan. Grabbing anyone and everyone he could, headquarters staff and those standing around, Deusterhoff put up his own roadblock on the trail. So when the enemy 2nd Battalion came down, they ran into this wall. Deusterhoff constantly yelled at his men how important it was to keep the enemy back. Meanwhile, the men of the 2nd Battalion of the Japanese were told how important it was for them to keep going to rescue their brothers. This contest of wills played itself out, with bodies falling on each side. But as the struggle continued, the Japanese got no further. After wiping out most of Company F, the attackers had made it another 600 yards. But that's where they were stopped, still 800 yards short of the big pocket. To differentiate this penetration from the other two, as it was still close to the main line, it was quickly labeled the upper pocket. Hence, the situation at the moment was thus. Picture the defensive line going from left to right in a slight northeasterly direction, and if one put a dot in between the three penetrations, the big pocket would be at 5 o'clock, the little pocket would be at 9 o'clock, and the upper pocket would be at 2 o'clock. Given the short distance between these three, the Allies had a serious breach on their hands that could end up shattering their entire line. To be sure, for the last few days, the Allies had been trying to destroy the little and big pockets. General Segundo had sent everything he had at the small pocket, but those enemy troops were too well dug in. Meanwhile, General Broger had been hitting the big pocket with equally little luck. However, at least Broger had the big pocket more or less surrounded, with two companies to the north and the northeast of the enemy, the 1st Battalion, 45th Infantry, to its south, and the Provisional Battalion, 51st Division, near the point where trails 7 and 5 connect. Still, the job wasn't getting done. Now, Back on February 2nd, Broger had sent in a reconnaissance unit, and they reported back that a lone tank attack would not cut it in wiping out the big pocket. Still, Broger sent the tanks along Trail 7, coming from the south, and when they got to the enemy position, the tanks opened up but kept moving all the while. In time, they made it through, delivering some casualties to the enemy, but lost one tank for their pains. With this diversion going on, a platoon of the 1st Battalion, 45th Infantry, also engaged the big pocket. Like the tanks, they achieved a modest success, but Yoshioka's men were still there. Broger tried this again the next day, February 3rd, but the results were practically the same. One tank was lost, but a few more Japanese troops were taken out. Not a fair trade from the Allied point of view. Which brings us to the story of Lieutenant Willibald C. Bianchi, who was about to win for himself the Medal of Honor. On February 3rd, 
as the tanks went in for their second charge. The accompanying platoon also moved out, and Bianchi volunteered to go with them. As the platoon was engaged, Bianchi was hit in the left hand. Refusing medical attention, he put down his rifle and started firing his pistol with his good hand. This allowed him to get close to the first of two machine gun nests, and his part of the platoon was ordered to take them out. Now in range, he holstered his pistol, pulled out a few grenades, and threw them at the machine gun unit. Those enemy troops were now gone. It was then that he noticed that the light tank they had with them had gotten close to the second machine gun nest, but its 37mm gun was unable to lower itself enough to take a shot at the enemy emplacement, which is when Bianchi jumped up on the tank. But in his running towards the armored vehicle, he took two more bullets in the chest. Still standing, somehow, he grabbed the anti-aircraft gun on top and started firing at the machine gun, which was firing back. Within seconds, Bianchi went flying off the tank, having been struck again. It's not clear if this machine gun unit was taken out, but Bianchi would survive these wounds, somehow, and be back in the fight a month later. After running the gauntlet of Trail 7 twice on February 2nd and 3rd, by the 4th there was only one tank left from Company A of the 192nd Tank Battalion, so Broger ordered Company B forward. Company B ran the gauntlet, but again, though some of the Japanese troops had been hit, the majority were still there and still in control of the trail. Clearly, something much larger was needed, which is why General Wainwright called his commanders together at 10 a.m. on February 5th. Standing around Wainwright's office were General Jones, Broger, Segundo, and their chiefs of staff. Wainwright laid out the various issues. The two Japanese penetrations were overlapping sector boundaries, which led to confusion about responsibility, and they did not have time for that. So effective immediately, Broger would stand down and Jones would command the troops who were to rid the area of enemy troops. Under Jones' command would be the 1st Battalion, 45th Infantry, the Provisional Battalion, 51st Division, Companies C and G, 11th Infantry, and the 1st and 2nd Battalions, 92nd Infantry, the 1st Division, and all remaining tanks. General Jones, probably forewarned of these changes, already had a plan in mind. Step one, isolate the big and little pockets. Step two, put a ring of troops around the two pockets. Step three, crush the little pocket first. And then step four, use all available forces to destroy the big pocket. Wainwright approved and ordered that it commence in two days' time, February 7th. As for the upper pocket, still connected to the main defensive line, the attack that created that was about to get underway, so it was still a bit in the future. General Jones ordered all 1st Division troops along the main line to pull back. He was betting that the Japanese were just as focused as the Allies on these two breaches, so would not attack in force anywhere else. This was incorrect, of course, as Marioka was about to launch the 2nd Battalion. This pullback of the 1st Division, led by Colonel Barry, would go after the little pocket, and Barry was told to make up his own plans. 
As for the big pocket, though Lieutenant Colonel Leslie T. Lanthrop of the 1st Division, 45th Infantry, would lead the attack, Jones himself came up with the plan of attack. Basically, the main thrust would come from the 1st Battalion, 92nd Infantry, coming from the west. From the south would be the Provisional Battalion, 51st Division. Striking from the north would be Company G, 11th Infantry. Meanwhile, Company C, 11th Infantry, and the 1st Battalion, 45th Infantry, would stand fast to the northeast and east of the enemy's position, should they try to make a break for it. And all this was to commence at 9 a.m., February 7th. But, coming full circle, during the late afternoon of February 6th, less than 24 hours before Wainwright's big counterattack was to get underway, General Morioka, as we have seen, launched his own attack after getting reinforcements into the area. Thus, the establishment of the salient in the line, called the Upper Pocket. Broger, because of this latest enemy attack, realized that all their plans were about to go up in smoke. So, he grabbed the battalion from General Jones that was about to carry out the big push against the big pocket and the tank platoon. Jones found out about this at 7.30 a.m. February 7th, just an hour and a half before he was to launch his attack at the big pocket. So, he had to call in Major Judson Crow's 2nd Battalion, 92nd Infantry, to compensate. The men rushed in, and at 3 p.m., they were in place. Getting started late, the attack against the big pocket did not have the expected time to play itself out. Hence, by sundown, when the Allied troops pulled back, little success had been achieved. Seeing how difficult this would be, Jones would wait for the destruction of the Little Pocket to bring all forces to bear. As Colonel Barry's attack against the Little Pocket was not dependent on outside forces, it got underway at 9 a.m. on February 7th, as planned. Yet, it would not go that much better for Barry than it had for Jones. First, Barry had his 1st Division approach the Little Pocket from all sides. Here, he was more focused on making sure they did not escape than their destruction. And though his men moved in steadily, little success was achieved on that first day. On February 8th, they went in again, but this time the main thrust was coming from the southeast, which is when Barry was told that there was a small gap in his line to the east of the little pocket. Barry sent out orders to close this, and the next morning, February 9th, the men rushed in, thinking this was the beginning of the end for the enemy. However, when his men got there, besides the dead enemy troops on the ground, Colonel Barry found that some of the little pocket had squeezed out of the trap just before that gap was closed. So, technically speaking, the little pocket was no more. However, there were now some enemy troops running around behind the main line from this group. This was even more dangerous than before, as the defenders did not know where the enemy troops had gone to. Yet, it was time for irony to show its face. The survivors of the Little Pocket were making their way north, trying to get back to their own lines, However, when General Morioka had sent in his reinforced attack against the main line and created the salient, referred to as the upper pocket, he distorted the defending line in the area, 
where the little pocket survivors were heading to. As such, they walked into a horseshoe formation, which opened to the west. At that moment, the survivors of the little pocket were trapped. They were told this by the Allied troops and then ordered to surrender. The Japanese troops responded to this order by firing and were cut down to the last man. By late morning of February 9th, the little pocket was truly no more. Now General Jones was ready to launch his attack against the big pocket. However, earlier that morning, General Morioka was told by General Homa to pull back all troops. So Morioka radioed Colonel Yoshiaka and told him to start fighting his way back north. And to help Yoshioka and company, the 2nd Battalion, 33rd Infantry, which had attacked the defensive line and created the small salient, the upper pocket, would relaunch their attack to try to meet Yoshioka halfway. To counter this, General Jones had Colonel Barry take what troops he had of the 1st Division and move southeast to place themselves in between Yoshioka's forces and the attempted rescue by the 2nd Battalion. Also starting on February 9th, the rest of Jones's force started squeezing the big pocket. Due to sheer numbers, the two Allied sides started moving in to the point where they had to be careful or else shots from one side would strike comrades on the other. As it was, 2nd Battalion from the 92nd Infantry pushed in from the west. From the east, the Philippine Scouts and Company C of the 11th Infantry were keeping pace. From the south, the Provisional Battalion, 51st Division, pressed in northward along Trail 7, while Company G, 11th Infantry, north of the Big Pocket, pushed south, also on Trail 7. But here, the jungle would dictate terms to both sides. To the north and northeast of the Big Pocket, the forest was so thick the two 11th Infantry companies could not join up, and Yoshioka was soon made aware of this by his reconnaissance scouts. Yoshioka and his men were brave and willing to die, but right now they were under orders to make their way north. Problem was, they had been living off of horse flesh and tree sap for the last few days and soon would be out of water. Between that and carrying their 100 wounded comrades, speed was no longer an option. But when the big pocket began to allow itself to be moved, the troops pushing from the west and south were attributing their success to their own prowess, not to Yoshioka trying to retreat. By 10 a.m. on February 11th, Trail 7 was back under Allied control. Yet, as far as the Allied troops to the north of the Big Pocket, they were not enjoying success. That's because Yoshioka was ordering his men to hold them back so they could escape to the east by northeast through the gap. On that same day, February 11th, General Jones came down with acute dysentery, and his chief of staff, Colonel MacDonald, took over that day. But on the next day, February 12th, Wainwright put Broger in charge. That same day, February 12th, the Filipinos, who had been trying to push south from above the pocket, finally started moving, then kept moving, then moving faster, until they had gone a mile 
to where the trails 7 and 5 meet up, again, about one mile south of the main defensive line. At this point, Broger had all these forces involved in the Battle of the Pockets spread out to locate the enemy. What they found were horses, mules, 300 enemy bodies, and 150 enemy graves, and the vast majority of Yoshioka's equipment, guns, and ammunition. Wherever the enemy was, they were moving light and fast. Dodging the Allied patrols for the last three days, and then the main line, on the morning of February 15th, Yoshioka and his 377 survivors, out of the 1,000 he had started with on January 27th, had reached their own kind and safety. With the end of the Battle of the Pockets and the Battle of the Points, Homa had practically lost all three battalions of Yoshioka's 20th Infantry Regiment. Now, General Broga was free to focus on the upper pocket salient. In fact, just as the Battle of the Big Pocket was ending, the salient was pushed back 50 yards. A good start, relatively speaking. The attempt had been to pinch off the salient and then destroy the newly created pocket, but the Japanese troops were proving difficult to displace. Back on February 13th, two days before Yoshioka got away with his survivors, Broger got the attack underway again, hitting the salient from three different directions. Yet, it was tough going. On that day, little was accomplished. The next day, February 14th, the salient was reduced by 50%, now being some 350 yards long and 200 yards wide. But Allied troops were still dying and using up ammunition. This had to end. The next day, the 15th, brought forth another attack that cut this remaining area in half again. Now, this was achieved because of the tanks of the 192nd Tank Battalion, who had also helped out during the Battle of the Big Pocket. But helping in both battles was the Ingarot tribesmen of the Cordilleras, of the mountain chain on Mindanao. These headhunters, don't worry, the last head they took was in the 1970s, sat atop the tanks, exposed to enemy gunfire, and cut the entangling vines with their bolos. They also, because of their height on the tank, directed the tank driver towards the enemy. General MacArthur would soon say after this victory, quote, Many desperate acts of courage and heroism have fallen under my observation on many fields of battle in many parts of the world. I have seen forlorn hopes become realities. I have seen last-ditch stands and innumerable acts of personal heroism that defy description. But for sheer breathtaking and heart-stopping desperation, I have never known the equal of those Igorots riding the tanks. Gentlemen, when you tell the story, stand in tribute to those gallant Igorots. From here, the salient would be reduced again and again until all gone. But what was hailed as an Allied victory was really General Homa calling back his troops. His 50 days were over, and though he had accomplished much, the enemy was still free in southern Bataan and on Corregidor Island. No, he would call for reinforcements, rest his men, and when the time came, finish what he started. 
Greetings, everyone from Central Virginia. So as you could probably tell, allergies have kicked up. I'm very sorry. But I just wanted to say uh, hi and welcome aboard to some some people uh, who have donated and members. So the newest members are Richard Dresdale from Bronxville, New York, Randy Campbell from Brentwood, Tennessee, Ryan Czar from Sanford, North Carolina. Ryan, cool name. And as far as donations, Paul Gardiner from Rochester, Kent, UK. Um, so thank you very much all for becoming members or for donating. It keeps things going. And I will see you soon with the next part of the Battle of Baton.